0: Hi, everybody. I'm John Don host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. And in this episode, we're not going to be doing a debate, as you know we normally do. But if you're regular listeners, you know also sometimes we depart from that format And we have a conversation about the quality of our public discourse and what's going on with it and what are its underlying dynamics and how do we make it better. We call this the Discourse Disruptor Series. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking with Ezra Klein, who is one of our more influential political commentators today. We will be having a conversation about how you, our audience, can move beyond partisanship for its own sake and move beyond political talking points to think in ways that will help you make real decisions that are based on fact and reason and a true understanding of the issues you care about most. And that's what we think we do in our debates, and that's what we're hoping these conversations also help you do. You can listen to all of our Discourse Disruptor series by visiting us online at iq2us.org. That's iq2us.org. the number two, US.org. So joining me, and I want to thank you for coming to Intelligence Squared, Ezra Klein. Thanks for being part of this. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, Ezra, for those who don't know, you are editor-at-large of Vox, you're co-founder of Vox, you're host of the podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, and you've come out with a new book, congratulations on that. The title is Why We Are Polarized, and um, very timely question, very important question, and you make the point it doesn't really have a simple answer. Um, one of the things you say right away is that it's not about personalities. You, you reject the great man theory of history very, very uh, early on, and you talk about systems, that we need to talk about The polarization is the result of a system that we're part of. What, what do you mean by that? What, what are you setting aside,
1: and what are you going at with that? So I'm setting aside a normal way we storytell and and implicitly or explicitly answer questions in political journalism. So if you've read a lot of campaign or even White House journalism, what you get is a lot of, well, there was this meeting and someone sat down and then somebody said a thing and then the other person stormed out of the meeting. And the implication of this kind of work, and it's, it's good work and I read it and I benefit from it, um, is that. If it were only someone slightly different doing something slightly different, we would have gotten a very different outcome. Uh, And I have covered so many different campaigns and legislative fights and so on in D.C. That over time, I really began to lose faith in that argument. And and I lost faith because things had such persistent patterns. They had patterns in how people voted. They had patterns in how the electorate would uh, break down and vote. I, I note in the book that for all the talk of what a disruptive force Donald Trump is, he functionally put Mitt Romney's coalition back together and mm-hmm. just moved it around yeah. a little bit on the edges. Uh, and so the thing I wanted to move away from is looking at individuals as the causal actors of the political system and understanding them as actors shaped by the incentives of the system around them. So uh, an example here is that a lot of polarization literature will go and focus in on Newt Gingrich in the 90s, or more recently, sometimes Mitch McConnell in the aughts. And they will say, well, look at what Newt Gingrich did. That is what polarized America. And I think a, a more realistic way to understand that is Newt Gingrich was an actor responding to historical and social and political and economic incentives in his moment, which is why Newt Gingrich became somebody whose name we all know, why Newt Gingrich and not somebody else became Speaker of the House Republicans, why Newt Gingrich did that on the right, but there wasn't a corresponding rise in that kind of leadership on the left. And so trying to understand that requires zooming back out and understanding politics as a series of interlocking systems that are creating incentives for people and understanding the people as somewhat imprisoned by the systems they're part of. By the way, an analysis that very much includes me as a political journalist Mm -hmm. as well.
0: Mm -hmm. You you use the term in your introduction that politicians nowadays are marionettes of broader forces, which sounds like exactly the point that you're making right now. Not seeing them as the driver, but as being driven
1: by what's going on. Exactly. And And there are a lot of reasons for this. And I think this is something that we all know, but I also think it's a hard thing to keep in in our minds. So I think we understand that a lot of our decision-making day-to-day is structured by the choices we are faced with. So a, a good example of this is simply imagine you're running, as some people are currently, in the Democratic primary for the presidency. One thing that you have to do is actually appeal to the Democratic coalition as it exists. And so something you've seen over the past couple of years as the Democratic coalition has changed, as it's become more multiracial, um, as its center of gravity has changed, as Twitter has demanded different things of candidates, is a move. um, If you look at Democrats in the 90s or even you look at Barack Obama in 2008 or John Kerry in 2004, these are not elections that are that long ago. They are much more cautious on issues of race and immigration and even economics than they are now. Um, Bernie Sanders, who throughout his career has been quite an immigration skeptic, has moved quite to the left on immigration. And this isn't everybody just coming up with an epiphany on their own. They're responding to the world around them. They're responding to the increasing dominance of Hispanic voters in the Democratic coalition. They're responding to what Donald Trump has done and the way he has made clear the moral values and stakes um, in the immigration conversation. They're responding to the way the conversation now plays out on social media. They're responding to elections that are about base mobility not about persuadable voters in the quote unquote middle. And so what might seem like individual politicians like sitting up one day and saying, aha, I have a new idea are actually reasonably predictable responses to the context in which they're operating changing. And that context is changing for all of us. It's changing for us in the media. It is changing for politicians, for staffers. It's very importantly changing for voters. And then we are, as we make different decisions, then changing it for for everyone else. So the point of this book is to look at the way polarization has become a context people are responding to and has in particular set off a series of feedback loops where institutions, things like, again, the media or elections or um, leaders of political parties are acting in a way that is going to help them appeal to a more polarized audience or electorate. But in acting that way, they further polarize the audience or the electorate, and then that further polarized audience or electorate forces them to act in more polarized ways, which then further polarizes the audience or the electorate and so we end up in a a series of feedback loops that is leading the system into places that it at the very least is becoming ungovernable even if maybe some of the the discussions and debates and arguments we're having have a healthy dimension to them i know it may seem self uh, self self-evident to most listeners but how do you define polarization oh it's not thank you for asking me that because i should i should probably insist on doing that at the beginning of each interview Okay, polarization, the the easiest way to think about it is in terms of magnets. Uh, How do they work? (laughs) So what you have in polarization is it is often used as a synonym for extremism or disagreement or bitterness. It's not any of those things. You can have a very extreme or very disagreeable political culture or system that is completely non-polarized. Polarization, if you imagine two magnets on a table and a bunch of metal filings between them, if the metal filings are just strewn between these two weak magnets, the system is not very polarized. If you turn up the power on both magnets all the way, and so now half of the metal filings are around one magnet and half of the metal fillings are around the other magnet, that is perfectly polarized. You're polarizing around two poles. So that's one piece of it. All we're describing in polarization, it's not the depth of the underlying disagreement. It is simply how that disagreement is structured. Number two, there are different things you can be polarized on. You can be polarized about policy, right? People can have, you can be, you know, half of people believe we should legalize marijuana, half of people believe we should criminalize it. You can be polarized, and this is very important and I think undernoticed, but it's a big part of the book, you can be polarized around what they call affect, which the best way to think about this is you're polarized towards or against the other party. So we've seen a very sharp rise in what we call negative partisanship, how much people dislike the other party um, versus how they feel about their own party, that can take place fully separate from people's policy opinions. You might begin to hate the Republican or Democratic Party even as you don't disagree with them any more than you did a couple of years ago. Maybe that's because you're seeing more of the worst of the other side on Twitter or on cable news or whatever it might be. And so when you're talking about polarization, you need to be very careful with those two things that you're not mistaking simple polarization for extremism. I don't think our debates and disagreements, and we can talk about this, are more extreme than they used to be. And that you're being clear about what level you're talking on, because oftentimes what you're seeing is effective polarization or identity polarization that is the driver. And people are trying to solve that or argue that through policy compromise. But if that's not what's driving the underlying um, dispute, that actually can't be a solution and ends up uh, sometimes being an accelerant. Like extremism, polarization,
0: uh, I think, is a pejorative term nowadays. But I want to question why. What's wrong with being polarized? Um, Nothing. What's the harm?
1: I want to be super clear about this. I think this is a mistake. I think it is something that has made it very hard for us to have this conversation clearly, and it's an argument I make in the book. So the nadir of American polarization is in the mid-20th century. And the way to think about what was happening there is that America was functionally a four-party, not a two-party system. So we had the Democratic Party. We had the Southern Dixiecrat Party, which was quite large, but that was a um, ex- that was a very conservative uh, wing of the Democratic Party that was built around the preservation of white racial hegemony in the South. We had the liberal side of the Republican Party, I think somebody like George Romney um, or John Scranton, mm-hmm. and we had the conservative side of the Republican Party. And what happens in the aftermath of the Civil Rights Act and and, and that era is that blockage of the Dixiecrat Party, the conservative Southern Democrats, begins to to die out, basically. So they become Republicans. The parties then polarize across ideology. So you can look in the mid-20th century. You have a lot of Republicans who are more liberal than some Democrats in Congress and obviously vice versa. Uh, That ends. Today, you have no Republicans in Congress more liberal than any Democrat in Congress. And once you get rid of that blockage, then we begin polarizing across a bunch of other dimensions. We polarize um, into the parties much more by race. We polarize much more by geography, by religiosity, by culture, by psychology, a bunch of other things, and, and, and we can talk through them. But the point I want to make is that that depolarized period in mid-20th century America that uh, is often looked back on in our textbooks as a kind of golden age of American politics, it was built on a boneyard. It was built on Southern Dixiecrats. Uh, forcing a lot of internal mixture within the parties, but they were doing that by suppressing, and that's a very important key word here, suppressing disagreement on one of the central issues of the age, which was race. They were using the filibuster to stop anti-lynching laws, voting rights laws, um, other kinds of civil rights laws. And so one of the problems with the polarization discussion is we often miss the fact that the alternative to polarization is not consensus, it is often suppression. Now, the secondary problem is America is a distinct and unique political system, not one really in use almost anywhere else in the world, and no other country has ever had a system like ours and maintained constitutional continuity for a long time. We have a distinct system that requires very high levels of consensus or at least compromise to govern. So there's uh, in other systems, you might have polarization, but the way elections work is if you win an election, you actually have the capacity to govern as a majority. Um, in America, it's not that way. And so the particular problem, polarization, plays in our system is not that we are polarized, but that we cannot govern amidst polarization.
0: I see. It's the the inability to govern is harmful. And what I I found really interesting when you were just now describing the actual existence of four, practically speaking, parties at the turn of the 20th century after the Second World War, uh, through and after the Second World War, normally, though, we had two parties, uh, primary parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. And the lack of polarization or sharp divide you write in the book was of great concern at the time to political scientists. They thought that the parties were too alike and
1: and too accommodating of one another. Yes, so there's this famous report from the American Political Science Association, APSA, in 1950, uh, and it is, I believe it is called "Toward a Responsible Party System." And the idea of responsible parties is parties that clearly uh, represent an agenda. And I, I think it's really worth trying to put yourself in the shoes of the people thinking and, and arguing in that era because now, uh, I think I say in the book, it can sound like arguing for more polarized parties can sound like arguing for toe fungus and, you know, <laughs> yeah. seasonal flus. Mm-hmm. But that isn't how it was then. They make the point, and they're correct on this, that no individual citizen, none of us, can have a truly informed opinion on the vast range of issues that come before American government. I mean, should China be branded a currency manipulator? Should we have a no-fly, vo- no-fly zone over Syria? Uh, should the percentage of GDP collected in federal taxation be 29 or 36 or 41? Should we have a single payer that abolishes private insurance or a multi-payer system or a universal catastrophic system? What well, the main way that people exert power in the system is they choose which party to vote for. That is their fundamental choice. They, they make a decision, that this party represents my values best, and then I trust this party to expend its resources translating my values, the values we share, into policy judgments across a wide range of issues. And so what was happening in mid-century American politics is that the parties were functionally regional. And so if you were in the South and you voted for Strom Thurmond, who was a Democratic senator for quite some time, when he was a Democratic senator, he was the second most conservative member of the Senate. I think it's worth appreciating that. A Democrat was the second most conservative member of the U.S. Senate. And so you were a Democrat in Alabama voting for the Democratic Party to have control of the Senate, which is what Strom Thurmond voted for but you were voting for a party that it's people in massachusetts and in minnesota with hubert humphrey they were not really the same party as you. They were almost diametrically opposed to you on most of your issues. And so what was happening was that people were voting for a party but not getting what they had voted for. Um, You were in Massachusetts and you were voting for Democrats to have control of the Senate or the House, and you ended up voting for a party that was compromising with these very conservative, um, very racially conservative folks in, in, in the South. And so the political scientists thought, you know, this is a real problem. Like, it needs to be clear when people vote for a party what they're voting for and what they're going to get. And there was a lot of debate over this. I have a lot of quotes in the book, and I rely a bit on Sam Rosenfeld's excellent history of of this era, the polarizers. Uh, you know, you hear Richard Nixon and RFK and, Tom, and, and Dewey and others say – it would be a very bad thing if the parties polarized by ideology were already so split in this country by race and other things. For the parties to represent what they say, what they call a liberal-conservative divide, would be very dangerous. And it's also worth noting that in even in that APS report, there are dissent, there dissenting reports and critiques published. And one by a, a political scientist named Austin Rainey predicts basically exactly what happens, which is he says, if you if this happens, given the way the American political system is structured, paralysis and a rise in Enmity will be the result. You're not gonna get two parties that are having elevated debates. What you're gonna have is two parties who are so in disagreement on key issues, but recognize they need the other one to govern, such that the minority party will always be withholding cooperation in order to turn the majority party into a failure in order to regain power themselves. How so there's a there's a lot of very prophetic <laughs> work happening at that at that very moment. Because we do look back at that time period, mid
0: forties through the late 80s, early 90s with nostalgia over a kind of comedy among the politicians. You know, often, you know, we we could argue in 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 the house and then we could go all go out to dinner and be friends. And we think that that was, there's a sense that that was a good thing, that agreement could be reached, that there wasn't a dysfunction and there wasn't the gridlock of today. What, what is your take on that?
1: I think that there is reason people look back on that fondly and, uh, and I don't think that the period of depolarization was in any way all bad. I mean, among other things, it's a period that possibly arguably made it possible to have the Civil Rights Act. I think a very notable thing about the Civil Rights Act itself is that in Congress, um, it was deeply bipartisan, led in the Senate by Everett Dirksen, the Republican minority leader, and a higher proportion of Republicans in Congress voted for it than Democrats. I mean, can you imagine something today as polarizing as a Civil Rights Act that would have that kind of of bipartisan vote, right, where both the opposition and the support is bipartisan. Um, there's another version of this that I always love and, and think about a lot because we're in these Medicare for All debates now. But after the 1964 election, Lyndon Johnson has his Senate liaison, a guy named Mike Manados, uh, run down what the election is meant for the, po- the prospects of passing Medicare. And Mike Minados goes back to Lyndon Johnson and he says, well, If everybody who is lost and won is here and voting and present and accounted for, Medicare will pass with 55 votes. Now, at that time, you needed 67 votes to kill the filibuster. So imagine a period where you can imagine something like Medicare passing and the filibuster isn't even a prospect. And I think in the end, you have 13 Republicans uh, vote for for Medicare in the Senate. And so what you actually have in that period, to be fair to that period, is the American political structure – probably fitting the political system we have, the unusual political system we have, better than it has at any other time. Now, the reasons it fit it that way, as I argue, were not all good reasons, and in many cases were quite bad reasons. Um, But nevertheless, that was a period when American government, for some pretty real definition of the word works, worked. Uh, I think a very scary thought experiment is to paste the level of societal division we had in that era – onto the political system we have in this era. And and what I mean by that is this. I was saying earlier that polarization is not a synonym for extremism, It is not a, syn- a synonym for conflict. Mm-hmm. If you think about that era in American life, it is incredibly fractious. You have uh, assassinations of multiple political leaders, uh, John F. Kennedy, RFK, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, the near assassinations of both Ronald Reagan and Gerald Ford, um, Harvey Milk. You have urban riots. You have the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the anti-war movement. You have the psychedelic revolution. Mm -hmm. You have the indigenous rights movement. Um, American society is in many ways coming apart. You have National Guardsmen shooting student protesters and killing at least one in Kent State. But what happens is that the American political system, due to its mixed nature, the mixed nature of its political parties, is absorbing at that period the fractiousness of American um, life and doing one of two things. It is either suppressing the most fractious debates that it cannot resolve, like civil rights. Um, Again, and I think there's um, a lot of genuine evil in that. Um, But it is also absorbing some of these debates and returning something closer to consensus. It is bringing the temperature down on not everything in American life. I mean, think about the communist witch hunting in this period, but on a lot of things. Because when disagreement is within a party, parties have a lot of incentive to compromise uh, or to, to, to to, to, to find ways to bridge those gaps. So if you imagine that level of division on this era, when American politics escalates the division coming in from the country, in many ways, we are divided over much less foundational issues now than we, were, than we have been at other times in our history. But as soon as any hint of division gets anywhere near, particularly the White House, out comes a tweet escalating it into the sky. I mean, I think here of, you know, NFL players kneeling on the field or Covington Catholic high school kids getting into a confrontation on the National Mall. Mm-hmm. Now we have a political system that really tries to amp up division and draw its boundaries very tightly. And so, I mean, that's one thing in a period when the divisions, though very real, are not so foundational. But in a period when there's genuine violence on the streets um, and assassinations and other things, I think it's very scary to imagine that happening in the context of our system now.
0: We're going to have to take a break here for just a moment and we will be back right after this. In this special Discourse Disruptors episode of Intelligence Squared US, I am talking with Ezra Klein, author of the new book, Why We're Polarized. For listeners who don't know you and your work, let's talk a little bit about you, Ezra. Um, you, you really were a pioneer um, ages and ages ago. Um, when uh, when blogging was beginning and when the what we call the internet was beginning to take shape and figure itself out. Tell us your story of getting, uh, graduating from, I believe you went to UCLA, is that correct?
1: Uh, yeah, I went to Santa Cruz and then UCLA.
0: Um, you come out of UCLA and you end up um, ultimately as a found, co-founder of Vox and doing what you're doing now. What were the steps in between? Ooh,
1: um, <laughs> there are a lot of steps in between. So, When I started blogging, I was a freshman at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, It was 2003. And I assure you, it did not feel like you were pioneering anything. Um, It was just something random I happened to be doing on the internet at that time. I had no intention and no thought of becoming a political journalist. Who was your audience? Do you know? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> who, who was reading some idiot college kid <laughs> uh-huh. blogging out of his dorm room in 2013? And what was wrong with them is a wonderful question for the ages. Um, but it wasn't a big audience uh, at all either. I mean, this was, again, very early times. But blogging, I was there and blogging, writing about politics when that wave began to build. And uh, it Ended up being something that turned into a internship at the Washington Monthly, which is a great policy magazine in D.C. for me for a summer. And then I began to realize that I really did have this love for journalism and trying to understand the world through reporting on it and writing about it. And when I uh, graduated school, I went to the American Prospect, which is another small policy magazine in Washington, D.C., as a writing fellow. I was there for about uh, four years, and I really learned to be a journalist there, learned how to report, and tried to take a lot of what I learned as a blogger and begin to meld it into um, journalism. And one of the good things for me as a blogger in some ways was that the great thing about being a journalist is people will return your calls. Mm -hmm. Um, But in some ways, the bad thing about being a journalist is people will return your calls and it can breed a sort of laziness to have people just tell you specifically anything you don't know in response to a question. Mm-hmm. And so when I was a blogger for years trying to figure out some of these issues and it never even occurred to me that anybody would return my calls and they probably would not have. I had to try to understand them more from the ground up. And so I spent a lot of time reading textbooks about healthcare policy and political science and and other things and developing almost a more academic knowledge base that then has become uh, the the real sort of marker of my style as a journalist and very much the marker of this book, which braids together a lot of political science and other kinds of academic research. It's able to study American politics at scale and over larger time periods with a lot of very direct political reporting with, you know, senators and presidents and people involved in and in, in the House members and people involved in the system. And so I went to the American Prospect. That's sort of where I began to really blend those into one style. Um, I went to the Washington Post from there where I started uh, Wonkblog along with Brad Plumer and Sarah Cliff. And great Dylan great Matthews. name, by the way, Wonkblog. Thank you. Um, and, and a lot of this book is about identity and we can talk about that. But, but Wonkblog was very much a, an identity around being interested in policy because at that time in, in political journalism – it, I think it's funny because we that that fight from that we were waging and others were waging alongside us, I think has really been one. The amount of attention now to campaign policy plans, the amount of attention to what people actually want to do on the issues is just so much bigger. But at that time, There was this unbelievable dominance of he said, she said, horse race journalism. Mm -hmm. And so Wong was really trying to create a different model of how you could understand what should be driving the news in politics every day. What were the important issues and and how do you cover them? Who are the voices you want to listen to? And one of the things I noticed at WonkBlog or struggled with at WonkBlog was, well, even when we were doing a really good job, we were doing a pretty good job covering what had happened exactly today, right? So we covered the Affordable Care Act process very intensively, but we were covering what happened in the Affordable Care Act today. But when I would get emails from people or talk to people, that really wasn't the question they had. The question was not what happened today, knowing everything that has happened every day before today. Their question was always, what is happening? What is this? What? Why? <laughs> why is any of this working the way it is? And I realized it was a great, or it seemed to me, it was a great failing in the news media that we did not, say, have a place to direct people to say, here's everything we know about the Affordable Care Act or about the Federal Reserve's basket of programs to deal with the financial crisis or even about the financial crisis itself. And Vox was very much built on this idea that you could have a more persistent, evergreen, explanatory layer uh, beneath your journalism where what you're trying to do is continuously answer that w- what is happening and why is it happening question, as opposed to the what just happened question. The what just happened question is important. I take nothing away from the many people who do that great, and we do a lot of that because in order to understand the whole picture, you need to understand what just happened. But uh, but I did think it was valuable, along with my, my co-founders, um, Melissa Bell and Matt Iglesias, to build something that was more focused on the what has been happening. How did we get to today as opposed to the today? And you're
0: taking that lens to the question of polarization in the book. And I'm interested, is it just because you find the topic interesting and think it would be interesting to your readers?
1: Or do you think there's an emergency here? Ooh, that is a a good question. Um, Of course, there's, yes, there's an emergency here. But I really struggle in this because American politics and, in some degree, life on the planet Earth is one unending emergency. If you, we, We've just been talking about some of what was going on in mid-20th century America, which is remembered as a golden age. Then go back to the 19th century, which is not remembered as a golden age correctly. We have never not the, – the stakes of politics in America, but really anywhere and everywhere, are so high all the time. They are kind of an emergency. Maybe the 90s didn't feel to people like an emergency and perhaps correctly so, but certainly the auths after 9-11 and the financial crisis. And so I think the stakes of American politics are very high and they're always an emergency for many, many, many people. And part of the argument at Wonkblog and the argument of covering politics through the lens of policy is that the reason to care about this is because the stakes are so high, is because the chance to help people is so real, as is, of course, the chance to hurt them. I do think that this is a particularly scary moment and time if you imagine the trend lines extrapolating out. But the reason I wrote this book uh, in a deeper way is because I felt I needed to do the work to better understand what was happening and why. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I think the models many of us brought to politics that were working in, say, the Obama era didn't have a lot of room for someone like Donald Trump to crash into the system and win. And so it's very important to me that I didn't just run on the fumes of what I knew about politics from before. Clearly, something had changed, or clearly something was just very different. And so my old work, which was about how policy does or doesn't get done, you had to move quite a bit upstream of that. You know. Uh, I joke that we fell down Maslow's hierarchy of political needs um, into much more foundational questions about, well, what happens if you elect a very unqualified president? What happens if the Electoral College begins consistently delivering a different result than the the popular vote? As, by the way, has happened in fully 40% of the presidential elections since the turn of the millennium, which is a remarkable statistic, actually. So for me, a lot of my journalism is motivated by, by the desire to understand things myself, um, the beginning of any good piece of explanatory journalism is a question and mm-hmm. a question usually that the journalist is authentically curious about. And then I try to explain um, what I've learned and what I found to an audience that I hope will maybe be interested as well. So as you mentioned earlier in our conversation,
0: um, the issue of identity is very, very powerfully argued throughout the book. So g- give us the, uh, the shorthand version of the argument that you're making around identity in the book as a driver of polarization?
1: So we have this term, identity politics, and I don't think that there are many more misleading terms in American life than that one. Uh, We have managed to take an incredibly powerful force in politics and apply it to only a a small version of what it represents, like as if we only thought gravity applied to houses and cars, but nothing else. And so we tend to say something is identity politics when it is a traditionally marginalized group making a political claim based in part on that group's particularistic experiences. And so, you know, if you have African-Americans rallying against police brutality, well, that's identity politics. Black Lives Matter, that's identity politics. But um, when you have, say, rural gun owners arguing for an expansive version of the Second Amendment, that's not. Or CEOs who want a tax cut, that's not. Identity is a fundamental way human beings experience the world. We all have a myriad of identities. Um, one title for this book that I did not get cleared, but that I thought a lot about was identities politic, because an important point is that we don't just have one identity. Um, I'm Californian and I'm Jewish and I'm a father and I'm a vegan and you know, a, a million other things, a liberal and a journalist and, and so on and so forth. And depending on what is happening at any given moment, some of those identities are fused together. Some of those identities are lying dormant. Some of them are challenged. Some of them are not. Uh, I don't think too much about the fact that my father is an immigrant to this country, but if you begin to attack immigrants, all of a sudden I feel that identity very acutely. Um, moment to moment, I'm not thinking about the fact that I'm Jewish, but when there's anti-Semitic violence, I think about that um, very intensively. And so the key locus and there's a lot I'm working off of a lot of wonderful research here by people like Liliana Mason and Jennifer Richardson and others the most powerful locus of polarization in this country is over identity it is not over policy it's not over anything else it is over identity political identities republican democrat liberal conservative etc those are identities um identities do not have to be something you are born with and often or not religion of course is an identity and so what has happened in American politics is that there's been an age of what I call identity stacking. So if you go back, um, again, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, what you see is that the two political coalitions are not that different demographically in terms of who is in them. Um, That's true ideologically. We've talked a bit about how you had liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats, but it's also true in terms of, you know, what percentage was white and non-white in the Republican and Democratic parties? What percentage was Christian? Um, How did parties support Layout by geography and so on and so forth. But what we've had happen over the past couple of decades is this uh, fusing of other identities and political identities. So now, the Republican Party is more than 90% white, but the Democratic Party is about half non-white. The Republican Party is overwhelmingly Christian. The Democratic Party's single largest religious group is religiously unaffiliated, and from there, it's a coalition of liberal Christians and Buddhists and Muslims and atheists and Jews and agnostics and and, and Marion Williamson-style New Agers and, and, and so on. Um, density has become a very powerful predictor of politics. There is no city denser than 900 people per square uh, Mile that is Republican in this country. That is not how things used to be. You used to have a lot of uh, quite dense Republican cities. Psychology: There are a lot of ways of sorting people psychologically, particularly uh, around their politics, how they feel about threat, the way they experience the world, how they feel about tradition. Those do not used to sort people that well. Um, now, uh, people who are high in openness to experience and the, the various kind of psychological baskets that come along with that tend to be liberal and democratic. People high in conscientiousness tend to be Republican and conservative, and so. When you begin to stack all these identities, ideological and demographic and geographic and so on on top of each other, what you get is what Liliana Mason calls mega identities. And the two parties become, the two coalitions become very different from each other. And this is a key point of the book and a key point of our politics right now. Today, the parties are so different that it's very easy to know which side you are on, and it is very easy to feel threatened by the other side because they are so different from you. In the 1970s, if you were a Democrat, you know, a kind of moderate Democrat, but you saw Richard Nixon winning um, the presidential election, and this is before sort of all the Watergate stuff came out, you may not feel that bad about that. Richard Nixon, um, he had a lot of liberal social policies, and, you know, he appointed people like Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and... There's a lot of reason to see yourself in some of that. And there are people in the Democratic Party you deeply disagreed with. But as that begins to no longer be the case, and as the other party both looks and thinks quite differently from you, people's level of um, concern about what will happen if the other party wins uh, rises. Polarization and the way we act in the context of polarization is a very rational response to rising difference. Um, And I have a lot of data on this in the book about the decline in, in split ticket voting, the percentage of us now live in landslide counties. But I, I often think of a study, and I'm sorry because I'm blanking on the author's names right now, but that showed, and this is looking at, at other countries, that the chance of civil war is 12 times higher in countries where there's a lot of identity stacking as opposed to what are called cross-cutting identities, where people's identities are pulling them in different directions. And so there's a, a real well-validated uh, knowledge that when we, when our identities fuse together— Uh, they become more powerful, and it creates a lot more uh, social division, and that division can be a lot harder to overcome. So one thing I'm really trying to do in, in in the argument is make people see identity as something that is omnipresent in politics. I think I say in the book that it exists in politics the way gravity or cognition does. It's not everything, but it is always there. And to recognize that that is a layer on which our political competition happens, that it is not just that we are fighting over policy, not even just that we are fighting over power, we are fused to our collection of identity groups. We are very finely evolutionary, evolutionarily tuned to know if our group is doing well, if it is rising or lowering in status, if it is winning or losing the fights it is in. Think about how much sports... Um, polls from us, even as the stakes so of that are objectively quite low, and yet people burn their cities in the aftermath of wins and losses, mm. that operates much more powerfully in politics. And so it's something that I think people have been taught not to see because we've uh, restricted identity politics to these few groups. And we have to understand the most powerful identity politics are majoritarian identity politics. There's a lot of social
0: science research that has been uh, pulled uh, out of the uh, backrooms of academia since Donald Trump was elected to try to understand some of the things that had happened in the election and people seemingly voting against their own interests and what it is that motivates us to vote for one person or another. And you pull a lot of that together. Um, Some of which, one of which I found so interesting was the idea that voting against somebody we don't like seems to be far more powerful motivator for a vote
1: than voting for somebody we do like. Do I have that right? Well, I want to be careful because some of my political science friends are are very... They, they argue with me about this, and they say that, that that is not proven. So let me say it this way. I believe that it is a case that negative partisanship, fear of the other party, is often a more powerful motivator than positive partisanship. And I think that there's a lot of survey data and even political science research to, to prove me right on that. I think that the, the catch there is that if you can get a super inspiring politician, as say Barack Obama was for many people in 2008, or Bernie Sanders is for some people now, or even Donald Trump is for some people in his coalition, that is also a very powerful motivator. Mm -hmm. The thing is that fear of the other side is more reliable and reproducible than inspiration for your own side. So So it's it's easier to gin that up, in other words. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The, the, The question is not what is more powerful if you could create both of them at their max strength in a lab. The question is, what can parties more reliably elicit? Mm-hmm. And if you like listen to members of Congress speak, most of them are not that inspiring. Mm-hmm. But What they are able to do is send leaflets saying, you know, the Republican Party is going to take away your health care or on the Republican side, the Democratic Party is going to make, you know, abortion on demand legal for everybody at any point in a pregnancy. And people do get uh, understandably concerned about uh, the world changing in ways they, they deeply dislike. So I think that day-to-day negative... Partisanship is very powerful and I'll also say it's very powerful in the political equilibrium we live in now. Uh, There's a lot of polling from 2016 and survey data suggesting that Donald Trump's victory was very reliant on people who were not voting for Donald Trump but against Hillary Clinton. Um, Donald Trump won a majority of people who in exit polls said they were primarily motivated by a vote against the other candidate, while Clinton won a majority of people saying they were motivated by support for their own candidate. So one way to explain some of the the paradoxes of Donald Trump, who's this Republican Party figure who is very un-Republican in key ways, he makes a lot of arguments that are contrary to traditional Republican uh, policy dogma, he attacks other standard bearers in the Republican Party, he's attacked by many standard bearers in the Republican Party, and yet he very, very effectively consolidates the Republican Party in the final analysis and ends up running very much just like a normal Republican and winning for that reason. And the thing that seems to be the crucial ingredient there is that even if you didn't like Donald Trump, well, you weren't going to let Hillary Clinton become president and give the Supreme Court over to the liberals and so on, were you? And the answer for most Republicans, including many who, who did not like their standard bearer, was, of course not. Trump is the, the, maybe a lesser of two evils, but still by far preferable. We're going to take just a break. Ezra Klein, hang on just a moment, and we'll be right back.
0: We're back. This is the Intelligence Squared US podcast, our Discourse Disruptor series. My guest is Ezra Klein, co-founder of Vox and author of the just-published book, Why We're Polarized. Um, there was a line that jumped out to me way back in the back part of the book, where you write, polarization is often required for our political disagreements to express themselves. A line that I, I really loved, partly because what we do at Intelligence Squared is actually create, manufacture... A situation in which there is a polarizing argument, we present a, a, an Oxford style resolution. It's a strong statement of policy or fact or claim to fact. and one side gets on the stage and argues for the truth of that statement, and the other side gets on the stage and argues for the falsity of that statement. And what I find interesting about what we're doing on on our stages is that we give the audience the opportunity to change their mind in real time. We, I, I do a little talk with the audience ahead of time. Anybody who's been to our debates knows that I do this. I come out and I say, I, we, I would really like you all to come here and keep an open mind and listen to the quality of the arguments and be willing to be persuaded. And I'm sure some people absolutely don't, and they, they're in there to cheer for their side. But we we know because we have the data on it that a lot of people actually do change their minds. And more anecdotally, they talk to us about it afterwards. Somebody people will say to me when I linger in the lobby as people are leaving, "See, did you enjoy the evening?" not only did they change their minds but they they feel almost giddy about the experience it seems liberating that they've gone through that and they're, they're almost they're almost pleased with themselves for being open minded enough to do that and and then there's a lot of other people who just say i didn't change my mind but i'm never going to see that argument in the same way again all of which comes to my question about persuasion and persuadability in the context of the polarized world you're writing about does persuasion really happen? Does persuasion have a
1: role? Does it, Should it have a role? Is it a lost cause? What do you think? It is very hard to persuade people of something they don't want to believe. And so there's a, a, a concept here that I find very helpful from a, a political psychologist who's actually a Yale law professor named Dan Kahan called Identity Protective Cognition. So we think for different reasons. We have this sometimes very naive view of the way we uh, understand things, that we are simply like this heat-seeking missile for truth. And we're not. Um, Jonathan Haidt, who is a political psycho- psychologist at NYU, likes to say that there's a press secretary in our minds. Um, and the thing that the press secretary will do is when faced with contrary information, he will make or she will make good counter arguments, but will never say, oh, I'm sorry, I was wrong right? Like the, the press secretary never comes out and says at the White House briefing room, you know, what, that's a great point. We're probably just wrong about that policy. That is not the press secretary's job. It is not in their authority. That is not something they have the capacity to do. So it's very important to say not everything is like this. Um, you know, when I go to the doctor with shoulder pain, um, I'm not doing a lot of identity protective cognition. I just want my shoulder pain to go away uh, when I'm looking on Yelp to find somewhere to eat that night. Similarly, I'm just I just want to know where there's some good Chinese food. But when we get into situations where our identity and our identity group are at stake, it is rational on a number of different levels. And I think it's an important point because I think sometimes that there can be an implicit idea that people should be, they should approach the world in a way where their minds can be very easily changed. And that the the, the kind of laudatory way of approaching the world is that there are moments when you want to have a very open mind, but obviously if we wandered around the world with a purely open mind, our brains would fall out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be very, very hard to know Know, we're always trusting some people and not others. We have very little firsthand knowledge about what's going on. We need to build a stable model of the world we can work with. And you know, the fact that you just read some article today um, saying that everybody else you've ever trusted is wrong doesn't mean you should throw out everybody else you've ever trusted, right? Like all your your Bayesian reasoning, right? Might say, well, I put like a five percent chance now on being wrong or a ten percent chance now on being wrong. So I think it's important one to say this because the the Folks who study misinformation, I think, are very good on this point, on on arguing that there are reasons that it is hard to change people's minds. But particularly in politics, uh, you're often dealing with identity protective cognition, which is to say that if people are not arguing for the truth. What they are arguing for is why their group is right and should win. Um, this happens in policy debate all the time. And one of the things that I've observed over and over and over again is that when we begin debating a policy topic in Washington, things start with people having this very positive sum view. You have experts of all different sides in a room. And it's like, here's how we could have a health care system everybody would think is better. And then by the end, it's this pure party line vote. Every compromise is a compromise too much. And the reason is that the question is collapsed down from health policy to who is going to win, the Republicans or the Democrats. The example you give with IQ Squared, which I think is a, a great example, you guys have done a wonderful job building an identity among your audience that you should be open-minded, that you are here to learn, that you are here to be persuadable. Um, on my own podcast, I try to do something somewhat different. I talk a lot about the idea of there being arguments that are 70% right and 30% wrong, 80% right, and 20% wrong. And sometimes that wrong or right part is really important. Maybe an argument that is 80% wrong, but 20% right, that 20% is the piece you need to complete your model of the world in a sufficient and satisfactory way. I um, mean, I bring on a lot of people I disagree with for that reason, so people can hear these arguments. I think this kind of work is very important, but at the same time, I'm very clear-eyed at this point, having done – having read a lot of the political psychology research here and just the psychology research in general. I mean this stuff goes back years and years and years and years. That if you inflame somebody's identity, if you tell them they are wrong – um, and the thing and the people they ally with are wrong and you are right, it is almost impossible to convince them. What mm-hmm. you have to first do is somehow pull them or get them to share in an identity with you um, so you're in the circle with them, so that it is not psychologically threatening for the other person to be right. Are you susceptible to this yourself or I am? have susceptible you trained to yourself everything. out of that? <laughs> no. Um, I, 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 a disagreement I have with some of my interlocutors, Sam being one of them, is that... I think that we are all very susceptible to these um, dynamics and I don't think that people train out and in fact I have a section of the book showing um, and there's a lot of research on this that in many ways it is the smartest people who are most susceptible because the smartest people are the best at arranging facts hmm. to um, answer what they want there are ways to, to discipline yourself right the peer review process is a very strong thing in academia there are certain in incentives in journals, and when it is being done very well that I think help with this but in terms of, of us Human beings. We've done study after study after study on this, and I'll just say one that I think is really is is telling here. So Dan Kahan and co-authors did this very clever study where they gave people a. Um, I call it a brain teaser, but it's a math problem that is structured in a way. So if you read it fast or you're not that good at math, you're going to get it wrong. And the way it works is it is asking you about how well a skincare cream functioned, right? How how well did it have the effect that it said it was going to have? And so when you give it to people, you see more or less what you would expect, which is the better you are at math, the better you do on this very tricky math problem. But then they had another variant of that study, and they had the exact same problem, same ways in which it tricks you. But what they did was they moved it to be about gun control. And now what happened is that if you were very good at math, what decided if you got the study right, the the problem right, was what you believed about gun control. And so the difference in how well people answered it was actually biggest among the people who are the best at math because those were the people in certain ways who are quickest at uh, arranging the facts in their own head in a way that would give them the answer they wanted. And we see this with all kinds of things. We see this with the way people read articles. When they're reading an article they disagree with, they spend longer on it because they're coming up with counterarguments in their head. There are studies showing where we've paid people to have people on the other side inserted into their Twitter feed. And what we find is among conservatives, it made them more conservative. Among liberals, it was statistically insignificant, but nevertheless, to the degree there was a directionality, it made them more liberal. And so there was this backlash effect to it. So we see this again and again and again. You are not saved from partisan or just identity self-deception by being smart in fact what being smart gives you is more horsepower to find the answers you uh-huh. want to know about the world <laughs> I'm thinking of
0: all of those listeners out there slapping their foreheads now saying damn um, Ezra this was just a fascinating piece of information you just shared I want to say the book is fascinating there's something like that on every page its scope is enormously broad uh, but I guess that's your thing I mean you pull together a lot of different uh, disciplines in making this argument about polarization which as you say is basically explaining it light on solutions which you fest to in the, in the back end as well. So if you want a description about why we're polarized, I want to recommend the book. It was a terrific read. And uh, Ezra Klein, I would love it if you would come debate with us sometime, but I won't ask you to
1: commit now. But I, <laughs> I, 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 I would love to, yes. You've got to get me on, on Booktore, because right now uh, my life-protective cognition is no new things. But, <laughs> but at some point in the future, that would be a joy. All right. Thanks so much for joining us, Ezra Klein. Thank you.
0: And I want to let you know that this special interview series is brought to you by Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. Our debates are generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. Amy Kraft is chief of staff. Shea O'Mara is director of editorial. Connor Kerfman is our creative and marketing strategist. Jennifer Zelmer is senior researcher. Rob Christensen is the radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for your support.